Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Get out of here. I just want to talk to you one minute, Marge. Oh, get out of here. Don't you realize that I can make you the biggest star on Broadway? You want to be a ballet dancer? Yes. You want to be a great ballet dancer? Yes. Come to my office, three o'clock. All right, Mr. Shear. Isn't this scene supposed to go something like this? I'll make your test for you, and you'll be good to me, and I'll be good to you. Oh, who's kidding who? You know, the nice thing about buying food for a man is that you don't have to laugh at his jokes. Just think, if you were some big shot like a casting director or something, I'd be staring into your bridgework saying, Yes, Mr. Smearcase. No, Mr. Smearcase. Not really, Mr. Smearcase. Oh, Mr. Smearcase, that's my knee. Yes, I know the type. The minute he meets a girl, he starts feeling her ribs and talking about screen tests. You can't yes, keep me are. here. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. You, you, hear? Oh, you won't keep me here. You hear me? You won't let I me will. go. I but won't you let won't, you go. I won't stay in the house with you another Please. minute. Let me go. I told you not to come here. Why did you come? And those were scenes from film classics depicting the casting couch. That metaphor related to the history of actresses pressured to exchange sex for work in movies, but a term as well that has been expanded in more recent times to include all women in whatever job, whether lucrative or minimum wage, subjected to sex on demand to keep working. And our guest today is someone exceedingly familiar with how that casting couch works in Hollywood. Casting director Joe Thurm, as revealed in his memoir just out in release, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director, and Thurm will be talking about as well behind-the-scenes miscalculations, like Danny DeVito being dismissively predicted during his audition for Taxi as only useful just being a funny-looking guy of no real position on the show. Here's Joel Thurman. I think I'm going to like you. That's not important. I think the public will like you. That is important. Uh, yeah. I do want the job, Silver. I, I can't... Oh, I see. We do understand each other, then, don't we? Yes, we do, don't we? Good. I mean, I'd like to do something for you if you'd do something for me. You're making it awfully easy for me to do everything, except live up to your expectations. Oh, we, we won't expect too much at first. You see that man? That's Max Fabian, the producer. Now, go and do yourself some good. Why do they always look like unhappy rabbits? Because that's what they are. Now, go and make him happy. What happened? Well, isn't that more restful? I thought something grew out. It does improve the view, doesn't it? Beautiful. It's beautiful now, but think of how much more beautiful it will be when your name is flashing across the horizon. I'll be the sculptor and you'll be the clay. Hello. Hi, and welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Prairie. Thank you for having me. Sure. Now, one of the big reveals in your new book is the secrets of the casting couch. Why is this a subject you wanted to reveal? And what are some of the secrets of the casting couch in your memoir that would most surprise and shock everyone? Well, I don't think I called it. I mean, I didn't really, uh, I don't know if I called the secrets of the casting couch. It's true. It's, um, but I felt that in writing a book about casting, I had to put something in about that. And uh, only because it's usually the first or second question that everybody will ask once they find out I'm a casting director. <laughs> and I maintain that the casting couch, using it in its broadest sense, exists in every single industry or business where there is a powerful person and someone without that power wants something that that powerful person can control. So, you with me? Yeah. Are with me, so I could see the casting couch happening in a law office, where um, you know they uh, they're hiring a new paralegal, and there are six uh, six applicants. You know, I, I find that happens all over the, the casting couch. It probably is a little more well known, probably because 
prettier people are involved. So, uh, you know, and, and what I talk about in, in, in my book is uh, there were certain people who I knew were participants in this, and several, including two agents and a cast and a and a casting director bragged to me about their MO and how they went about doing it. And and they and, and because they thought that I would actually be interested in this, they could give me tips so that I could do the same thing. And they could not have been more wrong. And uh, I told them my thoughts. I said, look, this is really despicable and I'm sorry you told me this. And uh, from now on, I won't be talking to you in your agency. Now, I wouldn't, I would still, I would talk to other people in the agency, but I would no longer talk to that person. And I felt very strongly about that, very, very strongly about that. It was just something that I, you know, I don't, sometimes you don't have to be told that something is wrong, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, that, that was my, my stance on it. And regarding your book, what advice would you give to young aspiring actresses about the casting couch? Say no. Hello. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, first of all, it's seldom where, where I think it probably still goes on. It goes on at the very bottom where there are, you know, agents who barely represent any, who don't represent anybody of note and who will prey upon a, a person who isn't that savvy. You know, come on, you, you if we have sex, then I'll start sending you out for parts. Um, you know, the, the, advi- the, uh, the advice is, you know, it's, it's like um, if, if you, and this is just, by the way, I'm, I'm making this up off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone is persistent and, you know, comes at you with, you've you got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to be strong enough to say, no, 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 that's not me. That's not me. And say no. I mean, what's her name? Was it Nancy Reagan who said, you know, for, 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 for addiction and don't say drugs, just say no? Well, I thought that was a little simplistic. But, um, you know, it's, uh, if, if Bill Cosby hit on you, you could say, no, no, I'm not interested in going out with you, Bill, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, it, this is hard to communicate in like a, you know, a, a radio show, but I think that's the thing to do. And now, of course, you know, it's much easier to say no because of the whole support group and groups behind you. So the person who you say no to will probably be more worried about being exposed and will drop it. Now, that's my thought. Whether I'm right or wrong, I have no idea. (laughs) And Danny DeVito said about you as his casting director, quote, one comes along who changes your life. Thanks, Joel. What can you say about those memories of Danny and Taxi? Well, the, the memories are all great. I mean, you know, it's the thing about Danny on Taxi, which you you don't know, or if you read the, have you probably read it in the book? <clears throat> My first discussion after I read the script, I was told, oh, don't don't worry about the part of Louis, um, the role that Danny eventually got. They said he's never going to have more than one or two lines of show, so don't spend too much time working on that. You know, we just need a funny-looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, literally, the first day of casting, I brought in... Uh, you never bring in one person. You always bring in two people. Mm-hmm. So I brought in one guy who read well, and then Danny walks into the room with the script in his hand, throws it on the desk where all the producers and writers were, and says, who wrote this? And now, this is, is this live, or are you recording? Oh, this is recording. Okay, so I can say... Uh, Danny throws the script on the table and says, who wrote this <laughs> and throws it at them. And from that, from that minute, you know, he had them because, and the conversation that, that ensued after that was he was, he was Louis. That's what, that's the way Louis would talk. And obviously he got that part. And obviously if one could, arguably he is a big breakout star from Taxi. He has had the big, well, yes, he's had the biggest career uh, since then. Um, so, uh, and I knew, which the writers didn't know, that you can never say someone's going to just have two lines an episode because the public will decide who's going to have only two lines and who's going to become the next breakout star. But again, the thing about Taxi is I did good work on Taxi because it also had a great script. 
it's easier to cast a really good script than a horrible one. (laughs) (laughs) And any last word about your book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season? Last word in the sense, well, first of all, it shocked me. It's number one on Amazon in its category of movies and movies biography. Uh, so uh, that that shocks me. And Amazon on their little things on the side, it will say frequently bought together. And Amazon is actually suggesting that you buy sex, drugs, and pilot season along with Prince Harry's biography and Tina Brown's biography. So I, I think it's the most interesting threesome I've ever heard of. <laughs> okay, thank you, Joe Thurm, for calling into our show. Okay, if you have anything else, don't hesitate to call. I'll answer. (laughs) Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. And Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season is published by Bear Manor Media. And next up on Arts Express. Hi, I'm Laurel Brett, author of The Schrodinger Girl. What follows is part one of, or what it's worth, the opening story in WBAI Pacifica activist Mitchell Cohen's forthcoming book, The Rubber Stamp Man, Poems and Snippets. The year was 1979. Geneviève, the nom de guerre, I'm assigning to this member of our Red Balloon Collective and Poetry Conspiracy, she did, after all, look a little bit like Geneviève Bougeot, returned trembling to our rented collective house in Port Jefferson Station from her Physics for Beginners class at SUNY Stony Brook. Dr. Mould said that the sun will burn out all of its hydrogen in five billion years and go dark. We are halfway to the end. What's it all worth, then? The Three Mile Island nuclear power plant near Hershey, Pennsylvania, was in the process of melting down. The barely fictional Hollywood film, The China Syndrome, miraculously hit the theaters around the same time, and it revealed the lies and apocalyptic results of the nuclear corporate madness we were all experiencing. Thousands of anti-nuke protesters, Genevieve and our mutual friend Bonita among them, marched repeatedly against the horrors and immorality of those who would hold the world hostage for their techno-fantasies and lust for profits. Barron's Weekly, that capitalist paragon, summed up their sociopathic lunacy. In the generation of nuclear energy, man-made hazards seem unavoidable. But bankruptcy strikes us as a needless risk. Dr. Richard Mould, physics teacher extraordinaire, saw his goal, at least one of them, as unraveling the politics and stultified thinking hidden in the way physics was generally taught. Dr. Mould had already become the faculty advisor for the Stony Brook chapter of Students for Democratic Society when it formed on the campus in 1966. He joined his students in their desperate fights against the war in Vietnam for social justice, especially for black people trying to survive in America and in trying to make sense of the existence of the universe. Our Red Balloon Collective grew out of the wreckage of SDS and its independent caucus. 19 and 20-year-olds were thrown into debates that had perplexed philosophers from time immemorial. Would people come to revolutionary consciousness on their own? Or would they, and we, need what amounted to a Leninist vanguard organization to intercede and provide Aesopian morals, the correct line, to lead them? Phil Oakes's I Ain't the Martian Anymore became the Red Balloon Collective's theme song. Now look at all we want with 
and so too did the Fugs' nihilistic song, Monday Nothing, Tuesday Nothing, which tugged in a different direction. Pretty much everything seemed irrational and absurd, but we felt it also was imperative to fight to bring the warmongers to justice. Che Guevara famously and wisely said, At the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. Everyone had pinned that poster to their kitchen walls. Che inspired me greatly, but I also wondered about the first part of that quote, why would it be risking ridicule to say that true revolutionaries are guided by great feelings of love? Why would we be afraid of being ridiculed? The Jefferson Airplane sang, We are forces of chaos and anarchy. Everything you say we are, we are. And we're very proud of ourselves. <laughs> Why not embrace the absurd, the irrational, the alienation, the ridiculous? The Talking Heads made it explicit in the 80s with their great album, Stop Making Sense. It replayed over and over and over again as Marja, we met at the No Easy Answers Left conference in New York City, and I clutched each other to keep from flying off into the cosmos as we tripped on some of the finest LSD I'd ever taken. Each drop in an organic honeycomb section compliments of a member of the Jefferson Airplane for trying to help him salvage his relationship with his then-girlfriend, a member of Red Balloon. Fifty-three years later, I'm just another old white guy sitting on the subway, dozing in and out of what some call reality. I wake to see several black teenagers finding a few dollars that had fallen out of a sleeping homeless man's pocket in front of me. I ask myself a version of the question that comes up so frequently. Should I intervene? Or should I wait to see if the kids themselves resolve it? The first poem in this book, School's Out unfolds that dilemma and tells that story. 
kudos to the big-hearted teens at John Dewey High School in Bezenhurst, Brooklyn, and to the cops for not showing up. Raucous teens explode, maskless, onto the D-train at Bay 50th from John Dewey High School. Half a century past, my friends and I, too, would fly wild like the station's pigeons clamoring in the rafters. Subway screeches, steel girders sway. A homeless man, exhausted, reeks from urine, sleeps through the ruckus. At his feet, a plastic dish filled with gruel. By its side, a dollar and change. One teen snatches the bill, holds it high. My lucky day! What to do? I sit quietly, waiting for the world to turn. Hey! His chum glares. That's the guy's lunch money. I hold my breath. A second passes, and another. Then, snap! Like that, just like that, the way Derek Jeter fielded ground balls and threw to first all in one motion, consciousness stirs, decision seamless. Wake up, he says, shakes the sleeper, does not wake. He stuffs the dollar and 63 cents into the homeless guy's pocket. It falls out. He picks it up, stuffs it back in. Careful, he warns, someone might steal this. As usual, things happen sideways. I still can't console Jean Viev's existential despair or definitively resolve my collective's political dilemma, intervene by brandishing Aesop's moral lectures, or trust in the creative spirit to find its own way. Does doing the one damage the possibility of achieving the other? Is there a correct answer? As a child, I loved the maroon-colored book of Aesop's fables from which my mom would read to me. I tried to understand the moral of each story. These days, I remind myself of the motto from my own Zen Marxism writings. If there's only one answer, the question is wrong. Are stories and poems meaningful today in the face of COVID and pending nuclear war? Should a writer of any color or creed squander time on joyful word plays and personal and even fanciful tales when drivers, if black, are systematically pulled over by police and face the crapshoot reality of summary execution with every encounter? Leonard Peltier, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and Julian Assange remain locked up in prison, the latter two for the hubris of publishing exposés of government violence terror, and insanity. Bobby Dylan sang, Without freedom of speech, I might be in the swamp. No fly zone. As little kids in Brighton Beach, little Odessa today, we wore outfits knit by my grandmother that had no lechla, no opening through which to pee. It's been 73 years, yet every time some politician today talks about a no-fly zone, I remember Granny and have to pee. You've been listening to part one of, for what it's worth, the opening snippet from BAI Pacifica activist Mitchell Cohen's forthcoming book, The Rubber Stamp Man, Poems and Snippets, which will continue on Arts Express next week, same time, same station. So tune in and change the world. This is Comrade Karl Marx. And when I'm visiting the 21st century, I listen to Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Listeners of the world, unite. That's Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, where art meets politics. And if you're down with the status quo, take the local. And now on Arts Express, 
first thing we got to have is all of these niggers and all of these dagos that come in here to take our jobs thrown out of the mine. Mine's hell. They got them in our houses. They're sitting at our tables right now, and they're sleeping in our beds while we're out living under a piece of canvas at the back of the holler. I've been a union man my whole life. I know the story with these coal operators and their gun thugs. The only thing they understand is the bad end of a bullet. And if we show them, we just as soon blow up their damn minds and seen them work by a bunch of scabs, but then they're gonna listen. Someone's coming. Vitalix. We got someone. Where'd you find him? He come right up on the steps. They told me that C.E. Livers is where the union men's meet. So? I got business with the union. That's so. What's your name, son? They calls me few clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come here looking for no trouble. The men's got to eat. So why don't you go eat? Back where you come from. They told me that they was jobs here. Goddamn scab. You watch your mouth, Tuckerwood. I've been called nigger, and I can't help that the way white folks is, but I ain't never been called no scab. And I ain't fixing to start up now. I go ton for ton loading coal with any man here. When I do, I expect the same dollar for the same work. You get out of this holler alive, son, you'd be doing good for yourself. <laughs> Union men, my ass. You won't be treated like men. You won't be treated fair. Well, you ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment, like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. They'll use you until you wear out or you break down or you're buried under a slate fall, and then they'll get a new one. And they don't care what color it is or where it comes from. It doesn't matter how much coal you can load or how long your family has lived on this land. If you stand alone, you're just so much to those people. You think this man is your enemy? Huh? This is a worker. Any union keeps this man out. Ain't a union. It's a goddamn club. Now, they got you fighting white against colored, native against foreign, holler against holler. When you know there ain't but two sides of this world, them that work and them that don't. You work, they don't. That's all you got to know about the enemy. And those were scenes from the John Sales Labor Uprising classic, May 1. And Sales is our next guest to explain his latest work. We're a hundred papers and all and all. We're a hundred papers and all and all. We'll up and give them a blow, a blow. We're a hundred papers and all and all. Oh, it's how the border of war, oh, it's how the border of war, war. We'll on and we'll march to Carlisle, how we at Jetson Castle and all and all. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. John Sales has captured our imaginations ever since his first film, Return of the Secaucus Seven. And other great films followed, Liana, Passion Fish, Brother from Another Planet, Meituan, Eight Men Out, Amigo, so many others. But of course, John Sayles is not only a filmmaker, but also the author of short stories and novels, including Union Dues, A Moment in the Sun, and Yellow Earth. And now he's come out with a new novel called Jamie McGillivray, The Renegade's Journey. I'm very happy to be speaking with John Sayles. Hi, John. Hi, good to talk to you. John, tell us a bit about the new book's storyline and what the challenge was that you set for yourself. The story starts at the Battle of Culloden in 1746, when the mostly Highland Scottish who were um, trying to bring back the Stuart kings and drive the English out of Scotland were defeated, many killed and many made prisoners. And it ends at the Battle of Quebec, which was kind of the decisive battle for what's now Canada when the British defeated the, the French. Are you a Scottish heritage? No, no, I'm, I'm mostly Irish and German and probably a couple other things. It, this is a story that fell in my lap over 20 years ago. Robert Carlyle, the Scots actor, called me up out of the blue and said, I've got this great idea for a movie about a Highland Scot who is uh, defeated. And instead of hanging him, the English transport him to the new world, basically to serve as a a slave for the rest of his natural life. 
Then he escapes and gets involved with some of the Indian nations there. And I liked the idea so much, I wrote a screenplay. We scouted the highlands of Scotland with Robert, came back and scouted you know, various places that appear in the novel in the States and in Canada, and never were able to raise the money to make the movie. So about 20 years later, I just liked the story so much, I decided, well, I'm not just going to let it sit there as a unmade movie. And I, I converted it into a novel. Well, a lot like all your novels, it's very cinematic. I'm sure I'm not the first to say that. Mm-hmm. But what, why, why do you think you went back to this story now? Why now? You know, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated with what happens to people when there are these huge forces. You know, you think of people in the Ukraine now, the decisions that they have to make. There are Russian young men who have to make decisions as well. They may have had, you know, no desire to either be in the army or shooting and being shot at in the Ukraine. And some of them have found a way around that, kind of like people found a way around that during the Vietnam War. And I'm also kind of interested always in the history that I was taught, the kind of official story when I was taught history in the 50s and 60s and what actually went on, and the the tension between them. Well, the the main thing that came through for me in the novel was that you're writing a tale, the tale of settler colonialism, and how the brutality it fostered played out on the European continent and on this continent. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, one of the kind of constant themes when I was being taught about the French and Indian War and early colonial days was this idea that these somewhat civilized Europeans came into this savage continent uh, and ran into the savages. And all you have to do is look at the bloody laws of England at the same time and the way they treated prisoners and the way they not only executed people, but tortured them before they were executed to wonder who the actual savages are. Also, there was really nothing taught about the political complexity of Native people before Europeans came. That, you know, we had the Haudenosaunee Iroquois Confederacy. We had very complicated alliances and agreements and ad hoc agreements between neighboring tribes. And the highways of the time, the rivers, uh, would be controlled by different people depending on what, you know, part of the river you are. So, taking a trip to go hunting, you might pay a toll twice or three times on your way back home. And that just was left out of the equation. And of course, Jamie McGillivray is your protagonist, and he falls into one thing after another. It's a very uh, picaresque type novel Mm -hmm. of the 18th and 19th centuries. And Characters lurch from one horrendous situation to another, mm-hmm. wars, slavery, indentured servitude. It's kind of one damn thing after another, as they mm-hmm. say. But you have such a wealth of historical detail. And how much research did you have to do for the book? Well, I did quite a bit um, back when I wrote the screenplay, and that was kind of the overview. But when I started to turn it into a novel, I at least had the structure of the politics and wars that happened between the Battle of Culloden and the Battle of Quebec. And there are quite a few characters in the book who who were actual people. Uh, Fielding shows up, and Hogarth, and George Washington, Shingus, who was the war chief of the Lenape people. Then the more detailed research I would do chapter by chapter. And to understand what was going on, you have to understand the technology of the day. You have to understand the economics of the day, how people survive. And then you also have to go in and say, okay, what's going on in their heads? What are their beliefs? What is their worldview? What's available to them? And are they the exceptional person who thinks outside of that box? Or like Jamie McGillivray, who has a little bit of an advantage in that, that he's, he's good at languages. When we meet him, he speaks English, French, Scots, Scots Gaelic, Eris, and some Latin. And then he, he learns a couple native languages. He can see a little bit further into other people's communities than most people who, who don't have other languages can. You have a lot of fun with all these actual historical figures. For instance, you mentioned George Washington, 
And we see him in the book, not as a president, not even as the leader of a revolution, but as a vain but ambitious lieutenant in the Indian Wars. And it's really quite delicious and eye-opening because I don't think I'll ever think of George Washington the same way again. Yeah, the two things that really stuck out when I started reading about him, one was that he, he was vain and he thought he understood the native people he was dealing with better than he did. And so he thought he was manipulating them, and they were often manipulating him. And then the other thing was that he was a surveyor. And though they had their own politics and alliances and this and that, the native conception of land and land ownership was not the same as the Europeans. And there's George Washington with his surveying tools. He's drawing lines. He's claiming things. But I I think it was very important that he was very much a surveyor and a very ambitious guy who not only wanted to rise in the world at this time in the eyes of, of the English government, but he wanted to rise by acquiring land and kept doing that all the way through the American Revolution. You chose to delineate the many characters and allegiances, and those allegiances go back and forth But you help the reader to keep some of those allegiances straight by writing both in dialect and foreign languages. How did you wrestle with that all? Reading about some of these conferences where treaties were made and agreements about borders and land usage were made, very often there are five or six interpreters there because it's not a one-on-one exchange. So There's a Mohawk guy who lived with the Lenni Lenape, the the Delaware Indians, but he also speaks English. But the English guy who kind of understands him is actually a German, you know, and then there's a guy who speaks both German and English, and then there may be somebody else added. So I just felt like this, this melting pot of people with their different agendas who are often trying to understand each other. It will probably end in violence, but at first they're at least trying to understand each other. Jenny Ferguson, the other main character, has to learn French to survive. At first she she learns Creole French because she's kind of living with the enslaved people on Martinique. And then she learns kind of more, in quotes, proper French. When you work on a novel like this, do you sit down every day and write? What's, what's your process? Uh, I'm lucky in that I'm a writer who can actually be working on a couple things at the same time. I might have a screenplay job, either for TV or a feature at the same time that I'm writing a novel. And then it's just kind of, well, if I have a deadline, I'll work on that and get to my novel when I've sent that off. If I don't feel like writing, I don't. (laughs) I don't have any set time of day that I write. I'm lucky in that I can kind of check in and read three sentences and be back in that world. And it's a very different world than the other ones that I'm writing about at the time. My one kind of hard and fast rule, especially with a, a book like this, is that to keep forward momentum, I keep myself to one week of research before I have to sit down and write some fiction. So uh-huh. with a, a certain section coming up, I might realize, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to really learn about this, this, and this. And I'll, I'll go in and do research for about a week. And then I sit down and write that section, knowing that there are some detail things that I'm going to then have to go back and fill in. So I'll just put question marks. You know, it might be, you know, how do you load and fire a muzzle loader? Or what were the crops in central Pennsylvania in 1750? That can take a while, but usually I limit to a week of that, and then I get back and sit down and write some fiction. And how much planning do you do in terms of plot? The character of Jenny was a very minor character in the screenplay. And when I started wanting to expand that character, there was this lucky bit where I got a hold of the travel logs for uh, several of the prison ships that transported Jacobite prisoners to the New World. You know, they were mostly also served as as slaving ships out of uh, Liverpool. One of the voyages that was carrying both men and women who were being transported for being Jacobite rebels, I learned a ship called the Veteran. Just before it got to Jamaica to throw those people out into the cane fields as slaves, it was taken by a French privateer 
And prisoners were brought to the island of Martinique and liberated. But I just realized, ah, this is the link for me to get Jenny to the new world as well. What do you think a novel can do that you can't do in film? I think you can have many, many more points of view in a novel. Uh Almost all of my novels are told from multiple points of view. So even though an awful lot of Jamie McGillery is told either from Jamie or, you know, Jenny's point of view, Hogarth, the artist and engraver, you know, gets a chapter. Fielding gets a chapter. George Washington gets a little space where we get into his head. There's a character who's basically a janitor who works for all the barristers and lawyers. And he all of a sudden is tasked with, oh yeah, you know those spikes over the gate um, where you pass into the bar? Uh, We have two heads in sacks of recently, you know, beheaded (laughs) Jacobites. And you're the guy who's going to go stick them on those spikes, which was not in his job description when he took it. <laughs> yeah, right. That's one of the things that I love about your novels and films, for that matter, is the attention you pay to the minor characters. Well, you've been writing all your adult life, either screenplays, short stories, mm-hmm. novels. And some great writers like Philip Roth kept writing books, but scaled back to smaller works in later years. You, on Mm -hmm. the other hand, are producing 500-page, 700-page novels, 900-page novels. How do you do that? And it's not as if you aren't doing anything else as well. Yeah, you know, it's just where the story takes you. I'm I'm from the Carboniferous age where you typed (laughs) on a typewriter with a, you know, a sheet of carbon paper in there. So you had a copy of it. And then you had to change that every once in a while when it started looking dull. And you, you know, you saw the pile of finished pages piling up. And so you had an idea of how long the book was getting. When I write a book, I don't count pages until I feel like it's done. Mm. And then I don't really worry about them too much. I worry about, you know, does this thing propel the reader forward? Is there an arc here? Do people get lost? The book I'm working on right now, I think, is going to be about half the size as Jamie McGillivray is. Well, so this would-be movie became a book. Do you think it ever will become a film or, God forbid, a TV series, even if made by someone else? Yeah, I think it would actually adapt itself better to a TV series because of the size of it. Mm -hmm. I think that the work of mine that would make the best TV series is A Moment in the Sun. It's more doable. This is a difficult, expensive era to recreate. Plus, I don't think there are any active Lenny Lenape speakers, even if you got Native American actors and even if they were, you know, of Delaware Indian heritage, they might have to be working from tape recordings made many, many years ago, which is an awfully tough thing to ask of an actor. Hmm. And can you speak a bit about the next book that you're working on? Yeah, I'm working on a book. I'm just about done with it called To Save the Man, which is a a phrase that was used uh, for fundraising and popular education by Captain Richard Pratt. And he was kind of the brains behind the Indian school idea. So he started the template for all of those, which was the Carlisle Indian School. And uh, this is set at the Carlisle Indian School in 1890 and 91, which are all also the years of the ghost dance and the Wounded Knee Massacre. Pratt used to say Black people and and Native people are just as smart and could go just as far as white people could, Um, but he felt like the thing that was keeping them back was their culture. And so to save the man, we must kill the Indian. And so there was this kind of cultural obliteration that was written into the charter of those Indian schools. Kids were physically punished very often for getting caught speaking their own language. Their hair was cut off. They were basically encouraged to study white people and try to be like them. And that took its toll. John, as as we wrap up, what's the most important thing you know about writing? Uh, That it's, it's a process of exploration. What gets me interested in a subject is something I I know enough about to be interested in it, but there's so much more that I want to know about it. And so as you go into a book, yeah, I'm never sure. Yeah, it's the first 10 pages. Oh, do I remember how to do this? 
you know, I'm, I'm willing to write stuff that I know isn't very good and then make it better later. So I, I just keep plowing forward. And some of it is this, you know, this kind of adventure into unknown territory. And it's unknown in two ways. Some is just the, the research that you do or the thinking that you do about a situation. And the other is as the, the characters start to take form, after about 100 pages, they've, they're pretty developed. There's things that you, the writer, will believe that they would do or think and things that you don't believe they will do or think. <laughs> and, and that's a discovery as well. You know, who, who exactly is this character at the beginning of the book and who are they going to be by the end of it? Uh, Jamie McGillivray is somebody who takes an, an enormous journey and uh, all the things that he believed at the, and, you know, at the beginning of the book have changed radically by the end of it. Yet he's still walking around on the planet and he's still a player in the, in the world that he's chosen to survive in. Well, thanks so much, John. I've been talking with filmmaker and author John Sayles, author of the new historical novel, Jamie McGilvery, The Renegade's Journey, published by Melville House. I really enjoyed it and recommend it. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Frary Miller. We're a hundred pipers and no, no. We're a hundred pipers and no, no. We hail up and give them a blow, a blow. We're a hundred pipers and no, no. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with a birthday tribute this week on April 1st to late legend, jazz poet, musician, author, and revolutionary spoken word performer, Gil Scott Heron. Here's Peter Wise. I first heard Gil Scott Heron's work when I was living, if one could call it that, in Michigan City, Indiana, in the early 70s. It was the same time Marvin Gaye released possibly the best song ever made, Inner City Blues. Listening to Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon and other poem songs of his was just as much a revelation as Gaye's work. I was struck by the lyricism of Gaye and the utter accuracy of Scott Heron's work. It seemed impossible for two so very different works of art to occupy the same space as critiques of white supremacy. It was miraculous. I shared a similar drug habit as Gil Scott Heron did at the time in a city occupied itself by the state prison looming over the entire lakeside in a Rust Belt city, plagued by any ill condition one could think of. The prison existed long before the national incarceration rates were a matter of public record, and blacks were under the radar as victims of the prison industrial complex. But Scott Heron's work didn't need to be validated by statistics for anyone. Whitey on the Moon additionally laid bare the sinister paradox of money spent by the billions on useless manned space flights at the expense of social restructuring and racial equality here on Earth. This is an opinion I still hold today. While Scott Heron's life was cut short, his work, as the cliche goes, will forever go on. He was a huge influence on me and hopefully will be on the entire American culture, black and white, not to mention his last poets group had in the creation of rap. I hardly think he would have approved of the misogynistic and violent turn rap music took later, but it's something to say when an artist can be acknowledged as a wildly popular inspiration. All right, Gil Scott Heron. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Wise. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts and if you'd like to express yourself too you can write to us at the radio goddess at gmail.com and we'll end the show with music from gil scott heron and though spring has just begun with u.s endless wars it always feels like winter in america until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station Looking for the rain 
just like the city that stagger on the coastline and a nation that just can't stand much more like the forest buried beneath the highway never had a chance to grow never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the hills Have been killed Set away Yeah, but the people know The people know it's winter Save your soul uh, from a winter. 